and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the first of our episodes in the month of May. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again. It's a new episode for a new month here, as uh, time just keeps uh, ticking right along, doesn't it? It sure does. Uh, yeah, this week, I'm Dennis, the man who doesn't understand how time and life always find a way to speed themselves back up to warp 10. Ah, yes, that's uh, that's one thing we can impart to uh, any sort of younger listeners out there who might be partaking in our program, is that time speeds up as you get older, and it doesn't stop. It doesn't gear down. No, no, it's... I mean, about this time last year, when these lockdowns and the quarantines basically started, we were... But if you go back to our shows, we were talking about how everything seems to have kind of slowed back down. Like the first, what, the first like month of the quarantine felt like it was like, like only a month had passed, but it felt like three or four months had passed because a lot of stuff kind of happened. And, you know, I guess most people weren't kind of used to being that, I don't want to say alone with their thoughts or anything like that, but you know. The sudden disruption to, to daily life. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that that definitely became the thing, you know, early on. And we joked about, like, how, like, yeah, it's kind of a good opportunity to kind of, like, reassess and, like, you know, reevaluate and, like, you know, maybe, you know, slow down a bit. And, you know, that was working out just fine for a while. But then all of a sudden it seems in the last, like, despite the fact, I mean, some places things have been opening back up. Um, not here, not here, where we're, where we currently are, um, we, we are third wave, uh, central. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, for context, Canada, from what I understand in general is one of the worst vaccinated, you know, first world countries, you know, in terms of, you know, this whole vaccine rollout, but among Canada, where we're at the province we're in of the province of Manitoba, we also have maybe the worst vaccine rollout rate and or strategy of all of Canada as well. So of, of one of the worst, the worst. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a slow rollout. It's a very slow rollout. Um, you know, I, I think they've, they finally lowered it down to people above the age of 40, which unfortunately Mike, the legend and I just kind of missed that cutoff by a couple of years. Well, also fortunately, you know, I'm not rushing myself into be 40 years old or anything, but, uh, you'll get there soon enough, friend. Yeah, we, we all will. You'll get there before me yeah, by a few months. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, um, yeah, the, the point of this is just basically say, yeah, well, you know, we're still in lockdown generally, you know, we're, we're still kind of like trying to do the, the responsible social distancing kind of thing, but you know, it's, uh, Somehow, you know, we've, we've gotten used to this, you know, the pace of things again as humans and, uh, everything seemed to to speed back up again. Yeah. The, uh, this current uh, and new round of lockdowns is not slowing down the pace of life at all. No, no, it's not. It's like we've adapted and we're like, oh, okay. We, we've seen this before. So we can just find ways to continue on with the quote unquote new normal to, to adapt to our daily routines in this, uh, you know, new version, new round of a lockdown. And, uh, life will just continue on at the uh, same pace it was going previously. We'll, uh, except faster. And, uh, warp 10 now seems the, the baseline pace 
for existence. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. I don't know when that happened. I don't like that it happened. And I could uh, be okay with, you know, uh, warp seven. If we just geared down a bit to warp seven, that'd be swell. You know, I'd, I'd very much like for everything to go back to impulse speed. <laughs> Ooh. To, to, to further this nerdy Star Trek analogy, like, you know, warp seven is still pretty damn fast. I mean, normally the Enterprise doesn't go maybe above what? Warp three? Warp four? You know, for fear of burning out the warp coils. So, you know, I'd be, I'd be content with impulse power. I mean, that's what it felt, uh, felt like in, uh, the first round of lockdowns this time a year ago. Uh, it felt like life was, uh, on impulse speed. And yeah, you know, that, that's, that's good. That's fine. You know, that, it felt a little bit better at least. And I, I don't know what changed. I guess it's just human nature. We just kind of get used to, you know, not complacency, but I think we just kind of get used to, uh, how things are for a while and then, that just becomes the quote unquote new normal. And then with the new normal, we just kind of, our brains decide to kind of like speed things along for some reason, which is a little bit annoying. Actually, no, very annoying. You know, I think it also demonstrates that we are an adaptable species. Yeah. I mean, that that's very fair to say and definitely true. Uh, but on the uh, flip side, yeah, we also, uh, you know, experience the speed of life, pick, speed of life picking up, and it's uh, it's not great. I could do uh, I could do without that. I could do with the uh, the the quiet uh, calmness and stillness of uh, first lockdown. But uh, I don't know how we can go about that without any sort of more severe restrictions and uh, you know perhaps more horrible pandemic coming about. Yeah, and then you know, there's of course like the the human side of you know making things worse where. You know, anyone that like I don't want to like put anyone on immediate blast or alienate anyone here, but you know, I don't want to just specifically call out anti-maskers because you know there are a lot of like good people who generally are level-headed that you know might be a little bit wrong-minded in their thinking at times, but the the people who are just kind of like seeing you know having to you know do a responsible lockdown is like the some crazy infringement upon their rights and therefore, you know, on humanity as a whole, deciding to, you know, shirk the rules and go out and, you know, do whatever they want anyways. It's not helping. In fact, it makes it worse. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can go about uh, your daily life without a care in the world, but uh, that that impacts uh, the rest of everyone else in society and – uh I think what this uh, pandemic too has taught us is that uh, no one exists in a vacuum. No, exactly. I mean, the, the closest thing I think that we can see to that is the island nations of the world, like, you know, the Australia, New Zealand, things like that. I feel like they kind of did it right from what I what I can see on the outside. They restricted international travel. They basically just forced everyone on the island to kind of, you know, just hunker down for a couple of months and now their lives have gone back to normal with the exception of the international travel thing because hey no one's coming in and out all the people can be accounted for on the island they live on hey all the, all the disease spreading is stopped so hey we, we used basic germ theory to kind of stop this hey it worked <laughs> you know but people look at that and go like unfortunately we have this like I don't know, not to get too ranty, but it's this whole thing of like people always seeming 
to like not tr- like there's there's always some aspect of information that people just don't trust now and they just kind of think well, well what's the ulterior motive behind this like how can they be screwing me now and it's just like no maybe they aren't maybe they're just kind of trying to just end this fast so people can get back on with their lives rather than having it you know drag out forever like it has but you know you your freedom and all that you know we we have to consider your freedom because that matters more than just stopping this thing that you don't believe is a thing. Okay, great. It's like, yeah, you can get back to your freedom in a couple months. Like, that's fine. Or we can just go through many, many more months of, uh, you know, restrictions, easing of restrictions, more restrictions, easing of restrictions, the yo-yo effect. Yeah. And then we see, like, you know, the celebrities who are first on the side of, like, oh, this is all a hoax. And then all of a sudden, now when they actually get the thing and they're like, Oh, this is actually really bad. It's like, yeah, you, you need to like literally get it yourself before you believe it. Why can't you just listen to someone? (laughs) Like what's so wrong with trusting someone who maybe has gone through like 15 years of academic study. And you know, like I'm not saying just blindly trust people, but I'm just kind of saying like, maybe people are experts in fields for a reason. Like, like whatever happened to that? Yeah, do do people freely question plumbers that come to their house to to fix a problem or mechanics? I if mean, your, if your mechanic says like, "Oh, you know, you've got uh, your you know some sort of problem in your car, your uh, fuel filter needs replacing," do you immediately start questioning them? You know, where did they go to school? You do, know, do you go on record with your plumber or your mechanic and say, "I don't believe in that fuel filters." even need to be on a car. Do you then pull up on your phone and show them a YouTube video or these other three articles you read online that to debunk the existence of fuel filters? Yeah. Like maybe it's because, you know, being a mechanic or being a plumber or something is maybe closer to a thing. Maybe it's because it's closer to things that, you know, the average folks can kind of understand and wrap their head around that it's maybe easier to accept, but I guess in dealing with, you know, diseases and stuff, it's maybe a little bit more on the edge of uh, the abstract, which I guess, you know, is going to be a little bit hard to deal with if you aren't really already entrenched in some of that world. So I guess I get it. But it's frustrating that, you know, <laughs> as a result, it's impacting everyone now. <laughs> It is. And, uh, you know, again, where we are, we've been going through the yo-yo cycle of uh, restrictions, lockdowns, openings, more restrictions, things of that nature. So we are currently in the in the in the valley, the uh, or depending on your perspective, the uh, the the ebb or flow of restrictions. So we are under a version of lockdown, not as severe as before, not as open as things could, you know, or previously were. So we're in this for the next several weeks. And we also look and see other places opening back up and they're like, God damn it. God damn it all to hell. As we then also see the news reports of people in our area having rallies, uh, to rail against lockdowns and masks or, uh, from other parts of our country that apparently there were, uh, anti-mask, anti-lockdown rodeos in one of the Western provinces this weekend. Yeah. And yet through it all, time just keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking. Into the future. Yep. But that's, you know, an accelerated ticking. That feels like it's more so than the average tick of uh, one per second. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Life is has quickly become game time, where it's uh, you know an accelerated pace. <laughs> yeah, it, it's you know. We we all laughed at those, you know, the, the Super Mario Brothers countdown clock when we were kids being like, oh, we have 400 seconds. Oh, actually, each second is like, you know, there's five seconds countdown per second. What the hell is this? <laughs> so it's, it's really like we have like 90 seconds to beat this level, even though the counter started at 400. What the hell kind of time is this? <laughs> but that really is what it seems like these days. So, um Yeah. So I'm sure we're not alone in experiencing this sensation. If you are as well, let us know how you're coping with it. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or get in touch with us through social media. We're at The Arcade Show on both Twitter and Facebook. Now, having said all that, perhaps we should move off from uh, just lamenting the fact that we're old men experiencing time in ever-quickening ways to uh, actually talk about some video game-related materials, uh, or at least things we always talk about towards the top of the show, those being the ludicrous lead-offs. We have two news items in that vein this week, and both of them dealing with uh, items either being offered at or being sold for six-figure prices. Yeah, um... Well, and, and I think the, the first thing that we like to, well, no, we don't like to, it just happens that way, that the thing we always come back to these days is Pokemon cards. Pokemon cards are, you know, to use a, a tired phrase, a hot commodity these days. Um, it just seems like the, the price is like, it, if you're someone like me, you look at this and kind of regret not really getting into it back in the day because Pokemon cards were hella common back then, and it probably wouldn't have been that hard to find some of these rare cards if you just had the forethought of just like, well, if I buy a bunch of cards and just keep them in mint condition as best as I can, eventually they'll be, you know, worth some money. Like, just buy a bunch of booster packs and hope for the best, and chances are I'll probably find a really good one. And hey, like, if there's ever a chance to to go to a thing and get them signed, I should probably go get them signed by the artists or whoever. Because, you know, there, there are obviously, though there's been Comic Cons and, you know, various, you know, conventions and stuff over the years that I'm sure the artists who have drawn these, you know, the art on these cards and or, you know, uh, people involved in the game mechanics and actually de- designing the games and stuff have actually been to, or, you know, it's not super hard to approach people at conventions. Like, if you've ever been to a convention, it's not super, like, it, it's, People usually just kind of like sit at a table and just wait for autographs. So, you know, even if you have to pay like a $5 fee or something, based on what we're going to say in about, you know, a few seconds here, it's probably going to be worth it. It will be, as we have a story again of another Pokemon card selling for yet another ridiculous price. As I said, a six-figure price. Uh, the amount... And we'll get into the specifics of this card and kind of what makes it different to previous Pokemon cards we have spoken about throughout the course of this year on this program. Uh, but the selling price uh, for this card, which was uh, sold through Golden Auctions, after 31 bids were placed on it, the final total for this particular Pokemon card was $247,230 US. So damn near $250,000 US dollars. A quarter of a million dollars for this particular Pokemon card. That's a lot of scratch, no matter which way you cut it. Yeah. Now, what makes this card unique, 
this particular Pokemon card unique is that, unlike previous Pokemon cards we have spoken about throughout the course of this year on this program, is that there actually isn't a Pokemon depicted on this card. Yeah, and then you might be thinking, what? <laughs> well, how how can some how can a Pokemon card that doesn't even have a Pokemon on it be, you know, so expensive? That's a very fair question. That is a very fair question. Well, it's because it's a special one-off card that was done and features Pokemon Company President Sunakazu Ishihara, or Ishihara, excuse me. Uh, and it's uh, a card that was uh, done specifically for his 60th birthday back in 2017. It was presented to him, I guess, by some other artists inside the company or whatever else, and was given to him as a birthday present, a very nice present to give, and I believe this particular one is autographed and was put up for auction and sold for a quarter quarter of a million U.S. dollars. Yeah. So, not only that, it's still in good condition. It was graded NM7 by uh, a card rating authority. Uh, the signature was graded a 9 by another authority, uh, and it Features a depiction of the Pokemon Company president, Sunakazu Ishihara, as well as a Pokemon logo and uh, a Master Ball as well. So it's uh, it's incredibly it's an incredibly rare card, given the fact that this was done specifically for his 60th birthday. Yeah, and it's in near mint condition, so that of course will help as well. So good to know that. Uh, 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 Mr. Ishihara or whoever else was in possession of this card kept it in fairly decent shape. I mean, it's not a 10 or anything. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, the, the card's a seven, which is pretty good. And the, the, the signature's a nine, which is really good. So yeah. So 250,000 or roughly $250,000 US for a not Pokemon Pokemon card. <laughs> yeah. Jesus goddamn Christ. That's a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not the the only ludicrous lead off we have this this week. Um, I think the next one, arguably, is more ludicrous for more different reasons. I mean, the price is but one of the ludicrous reasons for this next one. I would say the thing itself is more ludicrous. Like the thing itself and what it is transcends the price for how ludicrous this next thing is, and that might sound very vague. But I can just explain. So I'm just going to say a sentence and you're going to go, wait, what? So I'm just going to say the Queen's Golden Wii is now up for sale on eBay, priced at $300,000 US dollars or 216,000 British pounds. So wait, what? The Queen's Golden Wii. What? Is this some sort of like gross, like bodily fluid thing? Or it's like, no, 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 no. Is this a Wii. fetish market? No, no, this is, this is, um, like a Nintendo Wii. Like, you know, remember the console, the Wii? You know, came, like, came out back in like 2006 or so. We, we talked about it originally when this very program was brand new. The Wii, the thing that introduced motion controls to the world, that whole thing. Yeah, you know, that old chestnut. Um, so about 10 years ago, uh, THQ thought up a, well, they came up with this PR stunt for, um, it's at the time latest Wii game, which was called Big Family Games, which, you know, in hindsight, 
like I've never played it, but I'm assuming it's one of those shovelware, you know, multiplayer, multiplayer, like mini games that was trying to be kind of like a Mario party, but just was kind of like trash. And, you know, I, I guess as history has kind of deemed it, yeah, it was a mediocre mini game compilation. Um, but THQ decided or thought that they had, you know, well, THQ maybe subconsciously recognized this and decided to come up with like really kind of like a crazy baller move to try to, uh, to sell this particular shovelware game or or at least to bring more public consciousness about this game, you know, and by doing that, they basically had a unique golden Nintendo Wii console made for the queen of England. And then they sent the console off to the queen herself. Um, which, you know, of course, the queen being the queen rejected this delivery because you can't just deliver something to the queen unprompted. Like there's, there's layers upon layers of like, you know, bureaucracy and tradition and various, you know, uh, like ceremony and stuff that you have to go through, you know, to give a monarch a present. Like I'm sure there has to be like a Royal audience and there has to be a reason. And you know, like, you can't just mail somebody to the queen. Like that's insane. Like, but they tried, and as a result, you know, the press did pick up the story. Um, and then flash forward to 2019, there's a YouTube series called People Make Games. They did manage to track down this this golden Wii to its current owner, who is a Dutch video game collector who goes by the name of Donnie Fillerup. And th- in their video, they kind of like, they they talk about how it happened, you know, and it's, it's a very interesting video, I can say. Uh, but in this interview... Um, well, you know, this, you know, Donnie has done interviews with various other subsequent people as well since then. Uh, you know, he, he did an interview with consolevariations.com and he revealed why he put this thing up for sale. He said, the reason why I'm selling it is simple, moving on with life. I've been in one place for my whole life. It's time to get my own place. At times it's been difficult for me to have free time or relax. Lately it's all CV and my daily job. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, he's, I guess he's, you know, involved with console variations. Uh, but when he comes home, he doesn't get to spend a lot of his me time. So he'd like to take the step and move on. So as a result, this thing went up for sale. And, you know, as for this $300,000 price, I need to be reasonable with buying a place for myself. And $300,000 is the price I came up with. I don't need more. Uh, also, this gives more people the opportunity to buy it. So there you have it. The Queen's Golden Wii can be yours for just $300,000. I mean, the the sentence is still suspicious at best to say out loud because, you know, <laughs> it does sound like, like you mentioned, some weird fetish thing or maybe, uh, you know, bordering on, you know, a gross invasion of some sort of, like, deepest privacy. <laughs> but... Yeah, yeah. this is a story that really can only be uh, talked about and discussed uh, in company where they will understand the context of what is being said. Yeah. So having, you know, set up the context and everything, thoughts? My thought is that I don't know if he's going to get money for this or the money he's expecting for it. 
Well, as we've talked about before in this program, people on eBay can list items for whatever pr- whatever price they bloody well please, and obviously they do if you've looked for any older games. Uh, in my experience, I've seen Super Mario 64 for the N64 listed for ridiculous prices multiple times over from multiple different sellers. So people can ask yeah. for whatever price they want. Good for them. Uh, I, if that's the amount he figures he can get, cool. Uh, I mean, perhaps he just wants a, a simple, uh, transaction. Hence why, uh, this person is putting it up on eBay themselves as opposed to going through an auction house with the auction house taking a cut of whatever action. But who amongst us would feel comfortable doing a transaction of several hundred thousand dollars over eBay? But also, so if this was actually something owned by the queen, maybe? Like, I'm sure there would be, you know, people who are obsessed with the royals enough. I mean, I know there are people who are obsessed with the British royal family enough, like, to the degree where this might be a big deal for them. If it was something genuinely connected, you know, whose providence can be proven. But it's not. It's it's just some PR stunt. Like, it, it was it was rejected by the Queen. Like, it was something... Like, I have a lot of questions about this. Is it real gold or is it just kind of, like, made to look gold? Like, it's, first it's of all, some sort of gold plating. What is the carrots? Because it's not mentioned what sort of, uh, or in this story, it's not mentioned what sort of, uh, amount of carrot coating the gold is around the exterior of this Wii. Or is it just literally painted like, cause you know, back in the day, there were some Nintendo cartridges that were quote unquote gold cartridges, like the Zelda cartridges, for example, but that's not real gold. That's just like a paint that looks gold on top of plastic. Yeah. It's, it's, or it, it's a dye job. Or, or is that what this is? I, 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 good question. I feel like for something like this, uh, given that it's claiming itself to be a, a golden Wii, there would need to be certificates of authenticity accompanying it. One, that it's been verified as actually being legit gold, uh, and certified to whatever carrot by a professional authority. And two, what's been the chain of ownership over this thing? Like, yes, it was sent by Ubisoft to the Queen, ha ha ha, PR stunt. What happened to it after that? Yeah. But also, like, again, like, is something, yeah, sure, I can see the value in it being a PR stunt from you, from THQ, sure. But like, is it $300,000 worth? Really? Like, come on. Like, it's not, it, at the end of the day, it's a we that someone kind of effectively, for lack of a better term, bronze themselves and then is just trying to sell after they, you know, unsuccessfully mailed it to the queen and they did a return to sender. Like, does that make it worth this? Like, it's kind of an interesting story, sure, but $300,000, like, you're, like, I get what he's coming from, like, and I get, you know, his whole thing, like, need, anyone who wants to kind of, like, kickstart, you know, a change in their life, you know, money is obviously a thing that you need to do that, but, but come on, like, <laughs> Like, I can't help but say, get real? I feel it's pretty ballsy in light of everything we've said for uh, this individual, Donnie Filler Up, which I also don't feel is the, is a real last name. No, if it I, is, I, that's hilarious. I don't think so. But for this person, Donnie Filler Up, to say, you know, I could have asked for more, 
but uh, 300,000 is what I need, you know, and it's all I need. So, oh, okay. Could you have really asked for more? Would you have gotten more? Do you have a reasonable expectation that you will get the $300,000? Yeah. There's more questions than answers to this story. Yeah, it's, so I don't know. We'll, we'll try to follow along with it and see what happens, but, uh, yeah, I don't have, you know, the, the biggest level of faith in, in this as being a successful venture for this guy. I mean, I wish him all the best, but I have my suspicions that it's not going to be what he hopes. Like he's not going to get what he hopes for it. Uh, likely not. Uh, if, uh, this person is open to, you know, best offers, what would they be, really be willing to accept? How far down from that $300,000 initial ask would they come down? 200000 yeah. 100,000? You know, 70 grand and a sandwich? <laughs> but it's like a triple decker sandwich, so. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, one of my friends, well, I guess mutual friend of both Mike the Legend and myself. Uh, he talking about, you know, years ago when he was booking a band, like he's from a smaller town outside of the city we live in. He was booking a band in his smaller town when he was much younger and then they had a big rider and he, he, he wears it as like a point of pride that he was able to get them down to like, I think they were asking for something like $10,000, but he was like 19, 20 years old and he, he got them down to $700 and a good parking space. <laughs> <laughs> so. And you know, that's, uh, that sort of negotiation skill has, uh, served him well in his, uh, future peer-to-peer transactions through Kijiji and other marketplaces. <laughs> yes, Kijiji, just lowballing people on Facebook Marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that yeah, he, whole type of thing. He, he's a, he's a master at it. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I can, I, res- I respect that. That's his superpower. Yeah. So if Dolly Filler Up really wants, you know, someone to kind of aggressively, help sell something for way more than it's worth. Maybe they should get in contact with this person. We could put you in touch. I'm sure he'll only ask, you know, a moderate fee. Yeah. You know, a, a percentage of uh, the final sale price. Uh, you can email us info at the arcade again, or hit us up through Twitter. We are at the arcade show on both, uh, well on social media at uh, the arcade show on both Twitter and Facebook. So uh, yeah, we can, we can make arrangements and then of course collect our respective finders fee for this arrangement to be made between, between the two parties. Yeah. So exactly. if you had $300,000 to drop ridiculously, would you spend it on a golden Wii? Me? Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> Just confirming what I already thought the answer to be, but good, good. Would you? I think, you know, ridiculous sports cars would be more in line and more appropriate with, you know, obscene expenditure. Yeah, sports car, like something that, you know, has a lot more general flash rather than, you know, like this feels, yeah, it's like, yeah, how do you they, show off this, this golden Wii if you spend $300,000 on it? Hell, even like, you know, like a nice watch or something like, you know, like get like a, like a crazy Rolex or something like, I mean, you can get a couple of them for this price, but still like, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, if what comes of this, that, you know, for 
what this guy wants to do though, it, it seems more along the lines of like maybe a GoFundMe would be in order rather than trying to sell something like this. Like unless this is close to what he paid for it originally, then it's like, huh, maybe you shouldn't have spent that money, but hey, you know, who, who am I to judge? Yeah. And, uh, and too, if you were, uh, my feeling is too, if you're actually serious about, uh, about getting rid of it and getting a high price for it, then you go through a certified auction house that has experience dealing with these high value video game related items. Something like a golden auctions we spoke of earlier, heritage auctions out of Dallas, Texas, who have experience selling cartridges and old games, rare games for obscene amounts. Yeah. I mean, those auction houses may all may have some kind of Rolodex or just an awareness of who the interested parties might be in something like this. I mean, yeah, they, they would, <laughs> but also like helping you, like, where did he come up with that value? Like, that's another question. Like normally, like you kind of need some sort of like, expert input on like what an expert in the field thinks that you can fetch for something. So like if he's saying, yeah, I, I pulled this number out of my ass because I know this is how much money I would like to get. And like the, the crazy thing to me is how he seems, you know, like, like, I don't want to like, you know, shit all over this guy's, you know, like, you know, opinion of what he has, but he seems to think that, $300,000 might even be a low value for this thing. When he's like, $300,000 is the price I came up with. I don't need more. Also, this gives more people the opportunity to buy it. Does he genuinely think it's worth more than that? I guess he does if he's saying something like that. But who did he consult with to, to, to determine that $300,000 is a reasonable price for this thing? Someone might have told him, oh, this is an $80,000 thing at most, or maybe it's a $10,000 item. Like, like, come on. And because it uh, was part of a one-off PR stunt for Shuffleware title that was, you know, put together by THQ, who I wrongly identified as Ubisoft earlier. No, it was THQ. Uh, pardon my slip of the tongue. But this was a one-off PR stunt. There are no comparables you can look to as a gauge of value. Well, I, I think, you know, there are maybe, well, not in terms of, like, what they did, you know, sending stuff to the Queen or anything like that, but... I mean, if you think of, you know, similar, you know, like, this isn't as big as, for example, like, one of those Holy Grail titles, like the Nintendo World Championships cartridge, of which there's only, what, like 30 in existence or something that people are aware of, that, like, they're only at max was 100, but of the ones that people know of in circulation currently, there's, like, 30, but, like that's like a thing Nintendo made and that's actually like genuinely like a thing that people knew about. And like a lot of people, you know, over time kind of like had it built up in their head of just like, Oh, that'd be really cool to get a, my hands on something like that. Like it's a, you know, very strange singular purpose Nintendo cartridge just made for a massive competition back in the early nineties. Like, there's only a certain number of those still in existence. Yeah, hell yeah, that'd be a cool, you know, memento of video game history. This is like a weird, you know, like it's not Nintendo that even put this together. This is THQ, a company who was so mismanaged that they kind of ended up having to like liquidate all of their assets, including their name. Like the THQ that exists now is not the THQ from back then. Like the THQ that exists now is 
people who bought the name THQ because they remembered like, oh, THQ itself still has some name cash in the, you know, maybe in the nostalgia circles and, you know, some older video gamers might remember it. Okay, cool. So like, that's what they did, but still like T like, this is like the THQ is like a shell of what THQ was first of all. And even then it would be basically equivalent to like, the arcade show buying something, bronzing it, and trying to mail it off as a publicity stunt for the arcade show. Like, at most, like, you're going to have, like, people who might care about THQ a little bit want to get this, so that might be an interesting thing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm curious where you got the $300,000 valuation from. Yeah, I am too. And, uh, this feels like something if you're asking where, if you're asking such a high price, six figures, $300,000 for it, that's 300,000 US dollars. Uh, what that equates to in your local currency, determine accordingly. But $300,000, I feel like there would need to be some sort of grading on this. And this harkens back to a point we've started uh, saying the past couple weeks when speaking about these high value uh, Pokemon cards, cartridges, or whatever's going for high prices, they've all been professionally graded. Their conditions certified by people whose living it is, is to certify and grade and have an eye for these sorts of things. Yeah. So this person, this Donnie filler up, this Dutch game collector, who's apparently been uh, holding on to this golden Wii for the last several many years, I imagine they would uh, keep it in good condition if they are asking for it to this point. But, you know, what is their idea of con- good condition versus what would be uh, your or mine idea of good condition? Yeah. Like, if you're dealing with legit, like, that's a very good point. Like, if you're dealing with legit collectors of things, they're going to want to see some sort of, like, like, they're going to want certificate of authenticities they're going to want you know professional gradings like they're going to like that's all going to factor in how much people want to pay and yeah like ebay is a weird choice like overall like i I think in general very strange choice to try to put something so expensive up on ebay yeah it, it for yeah i uh will follow this in the weeks ahead and see what comes of it if anything comes of it i uh as I sit here right now in this moment talking to you about this, I'm not entirely confident anything will come from it. Yeah, I, I probably, I don't think anything will. But we will keep you apprised of this situation as it develops. Uh, but moving off the ludicrous leadoffs, but still tying back to the ludicrous leadoffs. Now, if uh, Donnie Philarp really wanted to make a lot of money with this golden Wii, then really what uh, they should be doing is selling it as an NFT. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because that's that's where the new hotness is. That's where the big dollars are to be had, is in NFTs. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the other trends that, you know, have happened in the last, uh, well, I'd say six months now, in addition to, you know, us having to talk about Pokemon cards selling for insane prices, we also have to tell or talk about, well, NFTs going for insane prices too, because they kind of all crept up really fast and now they're everywhere. Yeah, it was, uh, it seemed like it was a low simmer and then just a fast, rapid, uh, rolling boil quickly. Yeah. Which I, uh, I, I went from being an old man unaware to, oh, now that they're going for way too much dollars. Oh, okay. The ground changed under my feet. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was on solid ground, but apparently it's a swamp and it's all sinking. Oh, <laughs> it's also quicksand. Great. 
and I feel like I can't get out. Uh oh. <laughs> That's not good. Well, I'll just get my hands out with my face. Yeah, and I'll pull my, <laughs> pull my arms out with my face. <laughs> <laughs> But we've spoken in the past uh, few weeks about how Atari, the shell that calls itself Atari, uh, is getting into the NFT trend and raised uh, several uh, several dollars, I believe over $100,000 by selling NFT tokens themed around Centipede and some other pieces of crap. Uh, and now news this week that an actual legitimate game company, uh, who is from a bygone era but still making solid games and who's... Uh, business model revolves around the creation and production of electronic gaming titles for people to enjoy is Sega. And Sega announced this week that they have entered into a partnership deal uh, to get into NFTs. Now, this isn't a, a deal that is Sega dipping a toe or perhaps even a foot into the NFT waters. This is more a deal that makes it look like Sega is jumping waist deep into the pool of NFTs and they're just standing there expecting the money to float to them because they announced uh, a partnership slash investment into a blockchain focused company called Double Jump Tokyo. And together, apparently the two companies will aim to sell a number of digital assets for different and varying Sega intellectual properties as NFT uh, content or non-fungible tokens over the course of this summer, beginning this summer, I should say. So Sega getting in on that sweet, sweet NFT action. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so exactly. does, this, does this feel like the last, almost like the last gasp of a once respectable company? It does. I mean, I, I hate to say that because it, it seemed like Sega was still actually like, doing real things and I say real things like, you know, developing games that people can play and stuff and, you know, being involved with, you know, that level of, you know, business. But I mean, if you're running a business, it must be hard to look at something like NFTs and then go and see the amount of money that's really being made with them. And then when you're Sega, like, you know, a lot of these NFTs are just kind of based on like nothing imagery and stuff. And Sega, they have like, I mean, love them or hate them. They do have like, they're almost, at least in North America, like they're almost at Nintendo levels of, you know, nostalgia. Now, granted, they, they haven't really, you know, maintained that position in the last 15 or so years, but people of our age range, like, you know, if, if you think about like, you know, the video game, the iconic video game characters from our youths, the top two were Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog. So like the Sega still is in there. So they must be aware of this. And like, they're probably looking at this going, yeah, we have like Sonic the Hedgehog. We also have a few other, you know, classic franchises and stuff that we could probably, you know, sell pictures of and like, you know, sell, you know, music from and whatnot in the form of these tokens. Why don't we try to make a bunch of money? So, I mean, I don't, I don't blame them. Like, frankly, I'd probably be in the same boat. It's just like, if I'm not actively like making tons of money with my products anyways, I would still be looking for ways to make money with my products. But it, it just given the nature of, you know, these NFTs and how they popped up and they're just kind of like more along the lines of, you know, what Bitcoin and stuff is of just basically ultimately nonsense, nothing that's just basically people are just spending a ton of money on 
and it's nothing. It's like nothing actually tangible. Uh, like, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, yeah, we, I'm sure you can talk to the, the experts in these fields can talk to like, you know, the actual tangible benefits of them. But when you get down to it, they're not a real thing. Like, if they can be wiped out within like, you know, electromagnetic wave to like a data center, they're worthless. <laughs> you know, not to sound like, you know, some like doomsday prepper or something, but like gold, that's a traditional thing. People view gold as like, you know, well, this is worth something. Tangible goods like lumber and whatnot. Like these are all physical things that like, it makes sense why they might be more expensive or less expensive depending on, you know, you know, where need is and where, you know, supply is and all this stuff. But like these things, they're just digital files. Like, I don't know. Anyways, the NFT rant over on my end, but still like, yeah, I don't know. Digital files with super long and complicated receipts attached to them. Yeah. That involve a lot of uh, electricity to generate and actually I believe are increasingly being proven to be harmful for the environment. Yeah, very much so. I actually saw someone on, you know, social media the other day post a, a screen cap basically of like some, some Twitter quote, like, you know, that, that type of meme that goes around. Someone has a screenshot from like some tweet that went viral so it can go viral on multiple platforms. And the, the, the quote was basically like, Bitcoin really does genuinely seem like, or, or cryptocurrency in general really seems kind of like, you know, the children's version of, you know, a bad guy from an environmental cartoon from the nineties where it's like, I turn on my polluting machine and I make money. Cause that kind of is what it is. Like, oh, you're turning on your pollution machine, your crypto miner, and you're just making money from it. Yeah, this is something that loot and plunder would have done on an episode of uh, Captain Planet. Yeah, or, you know, Cyril Sneer on yeah. the raccoons. Like, yeah, who, uh, who often had his smokestacks just churning out thick black smoke that uh, polluted the forest. Yeah, it was never clear what his business was other than just like a deforestation effort, dot, 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 and him becoming rich as a result. <laughs> like, Ooh, this, this could have also been an episode of the Smoggies, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Who makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> In hindsight, when you look at the Smoggies, you're like... Their whole thing is just sailing around, just dumping garbage into the ocean, and that's what they need to do? Like, what? to what end? What is the point of this? <laughs> like, there's no follow-through with this. Like, what's the point? Yeah, we're going to wreck the world. That'll show them. But won't it also show you? Like, what are you, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You have to live here, too. Like, what? If we have to live here, we're going to ruin it for everyone. <laughs> okay. Good on you. But back to Sega and this NFT effort uh, in a press release that was put out uh, in Japanese, though translated with the help of Google Translate. 
accuracy, take it for whatever it's worth. Uh, it says, quote, in this initiative, many classic IPs, which were developed on the hardware released by Sega in the past and are still very popular all over the world, are rich in digital assets such as visual art at the time of release, images used in the game, and background music. We will sell the assets as NFT uh, content in sequence. Uh, in addition, starting with this, we are planning to develop various NFT contents in the IP uh, currently being developed and also in new IPs to be released in the future. And in the future, we will effectively utilize the NFT contents owned by users. We will also seek services that you can enjoy even more, end quote. So, yeah, art assets, digital assets, uh, background music, whatever, character art, uh, Sega's going to sell it as an NFT. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be floods and floods and reams and reams of Sonic-related NFT content. <laughs> yeah. Good times. Good times. So this kind of feels like uh, something where, you know, in a hundred years time, when humanity is kind of looking back at uh, what started the, the true downfall of civilization, uh, it can be pointed <laughs> to. <laughs> that like oh yes uh, uh large swaths of uh of society started idolizing and spending way too much money and way too many resources on digital tokens and digital assets what did cause the second dark ages <laughs> <laughs> now class we're going to learn about the second dark age <laughs> can anyone tell me what brought it about <laughs> Yes, you in the back. Was it the environment? Well, that was part of it, yes. That was a contributing factor. Anyone else? Was it the unfiltered greed of, like, massive corporations? Now you're on the trolley. Yes, class. <laughs> and the teacher Hooray! turns around, you know, starts, you know, thinks the word greed and it appears on the chalkboard of the future. <laughs> yes. Or actually, maybe it'll go back to a thing where it's like they're actually using real chalkboards again because something happened and, you know, they don't have our crazy technology anymore. Maybe we become that, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the thing that you always see in science fiction movies where, you know, there's some more primitive society that's evolved after some massive extinction level event has happened and ruined some super advanced tech, like civilization. We are that super advanced civilization that has the extinction level event happen. <laughs> and then they just kind of have to piece pieces back together. What happened here? What wiped out this people? But oh, speak- it was their own greed and hubris. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, speaking of greed, actually, that's a nice uh, segue into our next uh, actual news item here, as we seem to have money-related stories coming out the wazoo. Uh, Microsoft uh, actually doing a, a bit to uh, show that they aren't as greedy as perhaps they could be, or currently are, announcing in a uh, company blog post that effective August 1st, they will be reducing the amount they take or their cut of sales through their PC game store. So what they'll be doing is reducing the current take of 30%, the you're using our platform tax, and reducing that down from 30% to only 12%. So that's an extra 18% that's going to go to the pockets of developers. That's good. And actually, if you look at it, this revenue split is directly in line with what Epic Games has set up through the Epic Game Store. Yeah. 
it's almost like Epic Games knew what they were doing when they started kind of rocking all the various boats that they've been kind of uh, riding in. I mean, it's 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 taken a while. Uh, Microsoft was slow to come around to this, and Valve, of course, still hasn't come around to this same line of uh, revenue distribution. <laughs> Eventually, they will, I'm sure, through litigation or whatnot. But uh, Steam, for their effort, are still charging a like a I think it's a thirty percent take, and then on high earning, high revenue games, it shrinks down to twenty five or perhaps even twenty percent because you know, gotta gotta let those uh, well to do developers get even more back. Yeah. But this is a a good positive step and uh uh good on Microsoft. I mean this is again limited only to sales of games through their PC game store, does not pertain at all to sales through the Xbox Marketplace or anything anything they have on the console. That I'm sure will come in the future, but uh yeah. So, uh Xbox Game Studios boss Matt Booty it says in in the blog post, quote, game developers are at the heart of bringing great games to our players, and we want them to find success on our platforms. A clear, no-strings-attached revenue share means developers can bring more games to more players and find greater commercial success from doing so, end quote. So, yeah, well, good yeah. on them, good on Microsoft, and hopefully this is a, a trend we see just continue throughout the game space, you know, Platform holders reducing their take because they're not really having to do a whole lot for that 30% anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's the, uh, oh, it'd be a real shame if your uh, game got taken off our platform tax. Yeah, exactly. It's just, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, so you know, Microsoft doing good. But, you know, for every – yeah, there really is a lot of um, interesting uh, money stories this week because, you know, we've gone from like, you know, the unfettered greed and hubris of, you know, crypto slash these new you know, non-fungible tokens to, you know, back to the good of Microsoft, you know, deciding to take less money because they recognize that, you know, it's other people making all the money. So, hey – might as well let the people doing all the work maybe take a bit more of their money in terms, you know, just for also buying themselves, you know, goodwill. But now we're back to maybe another company kind of going the other direction, which seems a little bit skeezy. So it might be a little bit surprising because, you know, they're not a company who comes up in terms of like these types of conversations very often, but Capcom, you know, Capcom, typically known as, you know, both a classic game-making company and also the company that brought that brings us Resident Evil. That seems to be, like, the general, in my head, what Capcom is these days. Um, but, yeah, like, as they have classic games attached to them, they do like to kind of re-release them in various, you know, cl- like, classic collections that we've seen over the years. I mean, there's cl- the, you know, Capcom Arcade um, stadium is one of the, you know, more notable ones these days. And, um, yeah, if you have kind of gone back to play Capcom arcade stadium, one thing you've probably noticed about some of these old video games is they're really hard. <laughs> you know, old video games are not easy. Um, but rather than just kind of like accepting them and going, ah, whatever, or putting in some sort of, um, you know, special mode into the game like Capcom has done, you know, for example, their Saturday morning collections, you know, like 
with the Disney games like DuckTales and like we talked about that a few years ago, how when that game came out, you know, that included Chippendale's Rescue Rangers for the NES collection, really like the DuckTales, Chippendale, Rescue Rangers 1 and 2 and uh, – Tailspin. Tailspin. Oh, possibly um, Darkwing Duck? It might have been Darkwing Duck. Anyways, all of the NES games that were released – in that collection, because they recognized it's hard, they put in a rewind functionality. So like if you're in the middle of doing something or like you're fighting a boss and couldn't quite nail the pattern of the boss, they would let you rewind in the game to kind of like help you kind of just nail it and not, you know, be super frustrated and left for screwed so that, you know, you didn't make a bunch of progress and then have to basically kill it all because they recognize a lot of people playing or probably adults with busier lives who don't want to be or playing video games more for fun and don't want to, you know, put in the hours and hours needed like they could when they were children. So, so they added this, you know, nice mode, but that was just kind of included in the cost of this collection. So they, Capcom Arcade Stadium is already out, but coming or starting on May 25th, um, if you are a player of this Capcom Arcade Stadium, you'll be able to, add, you know, enable this mode on the game that lets you just become unlimitedly invincible in every game. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's great. Well, what's the problem? Why are you bringing up Capcom in terms of, like, this bad category of, like, economics? Well, because to enable this mode, it costs you a dollar. Yes, that's right. Capcom is going down the route of paid invincibility. So, so do you remember years and years ago, I think uh, on this program when we maligned and spoke about the, the ridiculous fact that, uh, you could buy horse armor in, was it one of the Elder Scrolls games? Uh, I think it might have been Warcraft. Or Warcraft, yes, sorry, uh, time, you know, taking its toll on my memory banks. Yeah. For something so ignificant, but, but something as ridiculous as, as that, where a company was charging for horse armor, uh, for a, a just a useless uh, piece of of digital asset that uh, I th- don't think offered that much to your character, no sort of direct benefit, but people gobbled it up in, in spades. Um, strangely, I could see this paid invincibility being gobbled up, and oh yeah, it being a, a resounding success for Capcom. Well, the difference, though, I think, with the horse armor. That story in particular, we maligned it, but at least it wasn't something that directly affected the gameplay. I mean, in, in terms of that game, it was purely cosmetic because I think, whatever, you don't want to give anyone a, an unfair advantage playing an online game where everyone should be kind of generally on a level playing field and should just be kind of based on skill rather than how much money you have to do better or or worse in the game. But this directly does affect the game, and it's kind of like if you are having a hard time and you want to get this – I mean, on the one hand, sure, you're sort of like paying like the cheater tax. You could look at it that way. It's like, okay, fine. I'll pay the, the dollar just to get this stupid thing. And on the one hand, fine. Good, good on Capcom for doing this. But on the other hand, it's like – it just feels a little bit skeezy. Oh, it absolutely does feel skeezy, and with something like this – like it's a, it's an insignificant price. A dollar is pretty much a throwaway amount, but it almost feels like that should be attached to like some sort of charity driver. You know, for the month of May or month of June, we are donating proceeds to this charitable organization for 
all proceeds raised from the paid invincibility of Capcom Arcade Stadium. Yeah. But we both know that that won't be the case. No, certainly not, because that has not been announced, and in theory, that would have been part of the rollout with this, because to herald this announcement, Capcom released, a, I think, a 30 to 45 second YouTube video as well, uh, basically touting the benefits of the fact that, hey, all those old games that felt impossible, and actually in hindsight kind of were, yeah, and well, now you can uh, get through them with the uh, invincibility, you know, that you have to pay for. Yeah. Which... Granted, in something like this, Capcom Arcade Stadium is not without merit and not without benefit. Yeah, though, it, I mean, the, some of the utility does seem questionable to me. I mean, from what I understand, I haven't played it, but from what I understand, you do get unlimited quote-unquote quarters. So when you do run out of lives, you can just kind of pump another quarter in and pick back up where you're at. Because remember, these are arcade games after all, and that is how it worked back in the day. So back in the day, like, if you died, you just put another quarter in, you get to just kind of continue along. So in a way, you already kind of were paying for unlimited play. True, true, by virtue of the fact you paid for the game off the start, and then get all the free, you know, free quarters, quote-unquote, built in with that. Uh, I'm just kind of looking over the games list of uh, what's included in Capcom Arcade Stadium, and I can see where paid invincibility would be uh, a benefit to de-hassle the game, having to uh, pop in a new quarter, perhaps it resets uh, or whatnot, whatever the case might be. But you have games like Ghosts and Goblins, uh, Ghouls and Ghosts, uh, and a whole bunch of other bullet hell games, you know, in the vein of like a 1941 or 1942, that kind of thing, uh, where after a certain point, they just get unwieldy and almost impossible to play through. I mean, not if you're skilled, I guess. That could be the argument, right? But Certainly Ghosts and Goblins and Ghouls and Ghosts are, are hard-as-hell games. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Again, if, if, if these were your games, these, these, thing, these titles were your jam back in the day, and uh, you were aces at them, perhaps you might still be aces and remember some of the patterns and some of the... Uh, and some things might just come back to you through muscle memory uh, for people such as myself, for whom these were not my jam, these were not my games, I will be decimated and lose interest pretty darn quickly. Yeah, but I, I think that's sort of true of, like, every kind of retro game. So, I mean, they, they may be... It maybe should just be a part of any collection moving forward that there is some sort of like mode built in that makes it a little bit easier for the person who might be coming in fresh and just wants to kind of like observe the game or like, you know, someone who's hasn't played it in 25 years and just kind of like is looking to relive some nostalgia without getting too frustrated. But anyways, I digress. I mean, yeah, anyways... It's an interesting thing. It just kind of sucks that it's, you know, there's a dollar added, you know, just on top of that. You have to basically buy it as DLC. Yeah. It, the, the idea itself is interesting. The execution is not as great as it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like I said, if, uh, and you agreed with, if there was some sort of charitable association to it where for the month of May or month of June, money's raised goes to blah organization, organization X or Y, then yeah, I could totally see that as being uh, something with merit. But uh, as it is, uh, I still see people... I, I'm not going to be surprised if people are shelling out a dollar for the invincibility 
in this. Now, I don't know if it's limited time or if it's just an option you'll always have to select and be able to turn on in every game from now till the end of time. You know, does it go away? Is it limited? Shouldn't be, but uh, that will, of course, be borne out in the uh, weeks ahead as that feature again comes to Capcom Arcade Stadium on May 25th, which is also the same day that uh, that title, that collection, comes to PlayStation and Xbox platforms, as opposed to just being on the Switch as it is right now. Yeah. But speaking of Nintendo and uh, the Nintendo Switch platform and just all things Nintendo, we have one last news item to talk about on this week's program. Uh, it is related to Nintendo and also money. And the fact is that uh, Nintendo is doing a bit more to license its properties, license its characters, and one of the more unique aspects we've seen with that approach uh, under the new and younger Nintendo president, uh, is that they have struck up, or there is the partnership between Nintendo and Lego for Lego Mario and Nin- Lego Nintendo items. Not limited exclusively to the, uh, Lego Mario collection and Lego sets, but there was the also, uh, uh, Lego NES set where you could build a scale replica of the NES and a uh, scale tube TV and actually spin a little rotor on top to make the background behind Mario move like it's an old-timey animation. Yeah. Which was really super cool, kind of expensive, but then again, all Lego is expensive these days. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but the Lego Mario set has been out for, I think, about a year now, if not more, and... Uh, it's just been Mario as the main, main protagonist character that people have had to play with. You know, comes in your basic starter set and then you just build on and attach the other sets to it as you go forward. And also as you get them, maybe for your birthday, maybe for Christmas, maybe when you have a big payday at the casino, who knows? <laughs> Very oddly specific. I'm just... You know, whatever, whatever, uh, gets you into that extra sort of money where you just want to spend it on yourself. You know, good night at the VLTs, the, the races, whatever the case might be. You know, you're an adult. You can spend your money however you want. So, uh, Nintendo slash Lego announcing this week that there's a new addition coming to the Lego Nintendo universe. Uh, and it appropriately is the, uh, Lego-fied version of Luigi. Luigi is being added into the Lego Mario universe. So there's going to be the Lego Luigi starter course that was announced uh, and also shown off in a YouTube video and various uh, tweets and whatnot. So the, Le- the Lego Luigi starter course is going to come with a pink Yoshi, not the traditional green Yoshi as we have come to know and love through the years since Super Mario World, but a pink Yoshi. And it's also going to come with Boom Boom, who is uh, one of the enemies is the uh, one who kind of flies around in the uh, the mini castles, the half castles of uh, Mario Brothers 3. And you have to stomp on their head three times. Or you could just avoid them and get the whistle in that castle. Yep. Uh, so it comes with that. And there's also various obstacles you can build and place like platforms, pipes, the flagpole uh, to signal the end of that particular course. And this version of... You know, of a Lego Luigi has all the same built-in tech features, the little screens for eyes, mouth, and in the center of his chest. That Lego Mario does as well and uh, has the same functionality as you tap it around on various items, coin blocks, platforms, things of that nature, and causes a reaction. So it's still the same level of tech. It's going to be available on August 1st, 
and all for a price of 60 US dollars. That's, or more specifically, 59.99 US dollars, which I'm sure in Canada equates to 70, 80 dollars Canadian here based on that $60 price point. So, uh, yeah, it's about time that, uh, Luigi finally got some love. Yeah. I mean, he's usually the forgotten of the, the Mario brothers. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, as they unfold more and more sets into this, uh, Lego Mario, Lego Luigi universe, uh, will they perhaps bring in uh, a different uh, Luigi from uh, Luigi's Mansion, or will they just have a uh, specific Luigi's Mansion expansion set where you can build the, the haunted house or the haunted hotel? I mean, that'd be really cool. That would be really cool. And perhaps the, uh, the gust buster as well, the, the, you know, ghost busting vacuum pack. So, uh, if this is a thing that interests you, we'd link to it, uh, so you can check it out for yourself on our website, thearcadeshow.com. Uh, visit the Lego page itself. And, uh, I'm just going to take a moment here to reiterate that uh, I'm still impressed by the, uh, amount of, uh, tech that they've put into those little Lego figurines. I mean, granted the, the Mario one and now the Luigi one, they're not that small. They're not your standard minifigs. They are, figurines that look like they have eaten several of those standard Lego minifigs. <laughs> but uh, they still impress me with what they've done in in those uh, figurines as they interact with the other Lego obstacles and sets. Yeah. So if that's a thing that interests you, of course, you can check it out, add it to your collection, etc., etc. You know the drill. Yeah, exactly. But... Uh, I think that's, that, that's, that's been a whole lot of muddy talk we've spoken about this week. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, yeah, and I mean, like, as we go into our final section of the, the program, I'm just gonna preface it with something that's saying, like, hey, might as well cap it off with something that lost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, as, as we finish up with this program, you know, something we like to do towards the end of every program is bring, you know, talk about something from the past, like some sort of, some piece of media, a game, an album, a movie, a TV series, something just to kind of fit its, um, fit some notable anniversary that it might be going through at the moment. And this movie, well, it's a movie this week, I should say. And the anniversary is the 25th anniversary, believe it or not. Um, cause yeah, I, I can't believe it's 25 years old because I, again, I remember this movie coming out and, uh, you know, I think we were maybe a little bit young to be the target demographic, but I think there was a certain level of, uh, of interest, appeal. of appeal, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we were, you know, 11, 12 year old boys, you know, our age up until maybe 18, 19, 20, whatever would have been maybe the target demographic for this movie based on how they marketed it at the time. So yeah, as I said, 25 years old, came out May 3rd, 1996 for the Blast from the Past this week. It's a movie called Barb Wire. Now, we totally understand if you haven't heard of it. It's a movie that has somewhat been lost to time, although when it first came out and in the lead up to its release uh, around this time in 1996, it was a big deal. And in no small part because of the fact that it was a movie being used as a vehicle uh, to capitalize on and further the stardom for its uh, its lead actress, Pamela Anderson. Yeah. Who, 
in the year of 2021 in the last several years her star has uh, i think faded or uh in terms of notoriety celebrity and that could also be a conscious effort on her part to live a uh, less public facing lifestyle and uh just be you know out of the public eye a, a bit more entirely understandable because in the 90s Pamela Anderson was everywhere yeah i mean I mean, more than one of us might have had a Pamela Anderson poster up somewhere in their rooms growing up. I mean, for every generation, you know, maybe not so much anymore. Like, I assume that might not be a thing anymore. But, like, you know, there was a time, you know, when, you know, there would be, like, the the Playboy bunny that, you know, every every adolescent boy would have, you know, some – related poster up on their wall related to, and Pamela Anderson was the one for our age. Yeah. She was the, uh, the blonde bombshell uh, of that era. She kind of felt like a, a nineties, uh, more modern equivalent of like a Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. A, uh, uh a woman who is, uh, endowed with, uh, uh, a certain amount of beauty that, uh, you know, all men want her and all men want to be her sort of appeal and uh, then gets on into various roles of uh, television, film, and is able to carve a career out of that. Such was the case for Pamela Anderson, who through the 90s was the star of Baywatch. Uh, sure, it was, I think, uh, David Hasselhoff as the lead actor. Really, it made Pamela Anderson the star, and she became bigger than the show. Yeah, very much so. And was able to uh, turn that, along with several appearances in Playboy magazine, into a film role to expand beyond the small screen onto the silver screen and the big screen in Barbara Wire, which was her first effort. And I don't think history will judge it kindly. No. Now, granted, I've never seen this movie. Um, again, like when it came out, I was too young. I wasn't quite even 12 years old when it came out. But yeah, I mean, it, it was sort of like before the time of, you know, things being readily available on streaming platforms or anything like that. So, you know, you had to wait probably if, if you were 12 years old, you would have had to have, you know, happened upon it, you know, at someone's house or, you know, hope that maybe an older sibling or parents bought it or something and brought it home on VHS. And then, you know, you kind of snuck in when people weren't around to watch it or whatever. Or had an older sibling who could rent it for you. Exactly. But I, I was the oldest sibling of my siblings, so that wasn't, that was out for me. I didn't know anyone who was able to rent it. I actually don't know if I even saw this movie available for rent. And part of the reason, like when I mentioned earlier that let's talk about something that, you know, lost a lot of money. This movie had a $9 million budget and it only made $3.8 million at the box office. So like it was a flop. It was a huge failure. It lost a, a ton of money. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, awards and nominations, uh, it was nominated for six Razzies at the time called the Golden Raspberry Award. Um, so. And those are the anti-Oscars. Yeah, the anti-Oscars. So like this movie was nominated for worst picture, worst actress for Pamela Anderson, worst screen couple for Pamela Anderson's impressive enhancements. Uh, <laughs> Um, obviously they're referring to her breasts, uh, worst screenplay by Chuck Farr and Eileen Shaikin, uh, or Eileen, uh, I'm butchering that name, worst new star for Pamela Anderson, which it actually won that Razzie. 
And worst original song, which was Welcome to Planet Boom by Tommy Lee, who, you know, was still married to Pamela Anderson at the time before they split up because he was a terrible spousal abuser. But, you know, Tommy Lee of, you know, uh, Motley Crue fame, the drummer. But yeah, it, it also was nominated in the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards of 1996 for Worst Actress and in the, mem- but weirdly enough, in the MTV Movie Awards, not the, you know, Golden Raspberries or the Stinkers, it was nominated for Best Fight between Pamela Anderson and Steve Railsback. So, yeah. <laughs> Definitely lost a lot of money, was not critically acclaimed, and I don't, like, this, this movie didn't even really kind of roll around to be, to gain any sort of, um, cult appeal in the years to come. Like at least similar movies that came out. Well, I, I say similar because of the way they were marketed. Like for example, Showgirls is the closest thing to this movie I can think of in terms of like, you know, the way that it, you know, portrayed sexuality and stuff and, you know, tried to sell itself in terms of, you know, what it was as a movie kind of like as an exploitation type experience, at least showgirls rolled around and ended up with a cult following. I can't say the same for barbed wire. Uh, no, I can't either. My, my sense of history's regard for this movie is that it's been dropped like a hot potato and then absorbed into the ground and then decomposed and then reconstituted as, uh, as, as food and fertilizer for other better plants to then grow in its wake. Yes. Uh, I, I think the, uh, part of that could be because this was, uh, very much marketed as, as a one note movie where it, where you were just going to see Pamela Anderson for yeah. a, a 90 minute experience, which at the time you could watch her on your television for free on Baywatch and have a very similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, <sighs> This, when you, when I read through the plot on Wikipedia, it also sounds like a million other bad B movies that already existed. Like, I'll, I'll just read this first sentence here from Wikipedia. In 27, like, bear in mind, this movie came out in 1996. In 2017, during the Second American <laughs> Civil War, Barb Wire owns the Hammerhead, a nightclub in Steel Harbor, the last free city in the United States ravaged by the war. She brings in extra cash working as a mercenary and bounty hunter. Chief of Police Willis raids her club. Willis's target fugitive, Dr. Karina Cora D. Devonshire, a former government scientist with information about a new bioweapon called Red Ribbon, is being developed by her former superiors in the Congressional Directorate. The Congressional Council has taken Colonel Victor Prizer to find Dr. Devonshire so they can finally end the Second Civil War by releasing the virus on the United Front Territories. Dr. Devonshire hopes to escape to Canada in order to make this information public. So right there, that sounds like, you know, like a 15-year-old boy wrote it after reading a little bit about the Civil War and the Cold War, maybe? And also after, you know, maybe, you know, reading Neuromancer or some sort of like cyberpunk style kind of thing, or even maybe even watching Escape from New York once. Yes, taking all those influences and then sitting down, uh, in their room to, to write out a draft on, on loosely for Fullscap while staring at their Pamela Anderson Baywatch poster up on the back of their door. Yeah. And this was the script that was produced. 
And perhaps that's uh, in no small part why history does not have fond memories of it. But also there was a like my my sense of it at the time or from the time was that there was a big marketing push for this movie, capitalizing on the star power at the time of Pamela Anderson, which turned out to be not enough to carry an entire movie. But there, there was a lot of press. There was a big deal on, on shows like Access Hollywood or Entertainment Tonight. So much so that they made, or such programs back then and also other pieces of media made a big deal out of the fact that for this movie, Pamela Anderson got a barbed wire tattoo on one of her arms. Yeah. Because she plays the role of barbed wire. And so she got a barbed wire tattoo around, uh, the, the upper part of, uh, one of her biceps. Now, this was also the mid nineties when tattoos were, were still on the outs of acceptance in the mainstream and uh, mainstream society. Yeah. So like that would have been an edgy thing at the time to actually do, you know, like unlike now where, you know, people with full sleeve tattoos are very common. Like, and you even see business people and stuff with them these days, which, you know, I'd say is wild, but thankfully it's not. I mean, like, as a society, we, it's good that we are kind of beyond that. You know, it, it is ultimately just literally skin deep. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you can't really judge someone based on what they have on their arms or whatever. Unless, of course, it's a bunch of swastikas or something. And then it's like, okay, maybe that should be a warning sign. <laughs> you know, like, if it's really like broadcasting like a bunch of hateful, crazy imagery, fine. Like, maybe that's fine. But like, a little bit of barbed wire on your arm, you know, whatever, like, but yeah, at the time that would have been pretty intense. And unfortunately, like, I mean, I always kind of feel bad when people get, you know, tattoos related to a movie role that they think is like, you know, something they really connected to. And then it ends up just bombing as a movie. Like, I don't remember who it was. The actor who played uh, agent 47 in the Hitman movie also actually getting the barcode tattooed on his head. Ooh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's a little rough. I think that uh, I think that actor was Timothy. O- may have been Timothy Oliphant. Uh, yeah, yeah, seems that's the case. Okay, yep. Memory banks check out on that one, but uh, in this case of uh, barbed wire, the movie, yes, Pamela Anderson got a barbed wire tattoo. Whether or not it was necessary, who really knows? But. Uh, it, you know, part of me wants to jokingly say that this was a proto-feminist movie, uh, and help pave the way for, you know, the, the current, you know, modern, uh, strong feminist, uh, strong female roles we see in other superhero movies, like a Captain Marvel or something like that, or, uh, aka Jessica Jones. But I don't know if it had a big enough impact to actually, uh, fit that criteria or play that role. Also, was it, was it a feminist movie or was it a movie Written by a couple of dudes. Um, oh, well, I don't know. Was it written more like an exploitation movie where it's just like, let's just, you know, put Pamela Anderson in a skimpy outfit and, you know, make her say a bunch of like pseudo sexy lines just, you know, delivered in, you know, some exploitative way. Or is that, is that closer to what this movie actually was? I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. Maybe I should actually watch it just so I can properly judge it. But if I'm being honest, I had totally forgotten about this movie until you brought it up before the program. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that's, you know, if that's something I can even do. I'm sure it's probably available on YouTube or something. But anyways, yeah. 
It's uh, it's a thing that uh, is is hard to uh, really remember because it uh, really had no lasting impact and uh, landed with a thud despite all the build up, the hype, the capitalize or attempt to capitalize on what was significant star power on the part of uh, Pamela Anderson at that time. Like it, it may sound ridiculous to to say now here in the year 2021 that you know somebody had such star power in Hollywood because uh, ultimately they were pretty faced with a big set of knockers, but that's really what it was. Yeah, she had a lot of celebrity capital, and that's what it turned into. Now, in the wake of this movie, I believe uh, Pamela Anderson went back to a few more seasons of Baywatch before ultimately moving on from that to do what felt like way too many seasons of uh, her next show VIP in which she uh, played the, I think owner of a uh, personal bodyguard protection service. It, it was a terrible syndicated pseudo actiony type show, but it was, it felt like even less than Hercules and Xena levels of action <laughs> or like even worse levels. Yeah. It, and and also in terms of production values as well. It was a very campy show from what I remember. Yes, yes, it was. So, And then after that, I think uh, Pamela Anderson's uh, star kind of faded from the small screen and obviously from the big screen. So uh, I hope she is uh, living a, a, a good life uh, outside the public eye now. You know. Oh, actually, let's also not forget Stripperella. Oh, God almighty. <laughs> remember Stripperella? God, that went on for so long. It was two full seasons on uh, Spike TV. That's a lie. It was not two no, seasons. Oh, no, sorry. It was one season spanning over two years, which why it, it felt like it was going on for too long. But it was one season over two years. One, so one season in first run over two years, but then Spike TV would just rerun the holy hell out of that. Yeah, that for, was in that whole yeah, – it was made in that whole um, – Bunch of shows, including Gary the Rat, and uh, anyways, we, we don't need to talk about those things. It's uh, that, that's a different that's that'll, that'll be a whole other um episode or a whole other blast in the past some other day, I'm sure. Yes, uh, we'll simply say that Stripperella got a lot of uh, marketing push and promotion from Spike TV when it was the uh, almost the worst of those uh, original animated programs. Yeah. I say almost the worst, but not the worst, because Ren and Stimpy's adult party cartoon was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> like, Stripperella was objectively better than Ren and Stimpy's adult party cartoon. Yeah. As was VIP. This is also true. So, Barbed Wire, the movie from 1996, if you've entirely forgotten about this, you're welcome for being reminded. If you've never heard of this, you're welcome. I, I, yeah, I don't welcome. know. Don't know how to present that to you, but it is it is very much from one specific moment and one specific period in time. That's what happens when a movie is developed and feels like it's rushed to very much capitalize on the star power and celebrity of one single individual at that current moment in mainstream and pop culture. So, Barbed Wire, twenty five years old from nineteen ninety six, it holds up. I don't know. Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> uh, if you think it holds up anyway, let us know. You can email us info at the arcade show.com or hit us up through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook 
at the arcade show. Uh, and if you haven't uh, treated yourself already, then do yourself the honor, the pleasure, the grace. Give yourself the kindness of subscribing this program if you haven't already, or sign and subscribe someone else up to this program. Uh, we are on iTunes and Google Podcast. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And we then thank you so much for tuning in on this episode and hope you will join us again next time. So until then, good night. Good night. <laughs>